if I may say, just speaking um, personally for a moment or two, um, I have the, what should we say, um, dubious um, privilege of giving talks quite regularly at this time of the day. And I find myself um, en engaged in this um, occu occupation rather regularly throughout the year. And uh, it sometimes surprises me that, I'd, that come 7.25 in the evening at home, I don't find myself sitting cross-legged <laughs> saying the subject of the talk this evening. <laughs> anyway. And so I find that one of the hardest things with regard to um, giving the talk um, is actually finding the title for the talk. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was once again in this um, sit situation um, about 7.15 on what on earth am I going to speak about this evening? And of course, I, while I'm talking to you, I'm using up time. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can extend it to 45 minutes. <laughs> and I noticed on the last retreat, which I had um, <laughs> given, um, I had eaten rather a substantial meal at, at 5.30 and it was still weighing quite heavily in the stomach and as you probably have had the same experience when food is heavy in the stomach the mind is not exactly lively and, uh, and so nothing, nothing was coming through and I had to go for a brisk walk for about 45 minutes to digest this food and I did notice that when it digested the thought started to arise. So this evening not, I wasn't quite so full and I thought what on earth am I going to talk about? And, um, and then I thought I need some inspiration, you see, and I thought ah, inspiration, that's the... <laughs> <laughs> so hence the title. <laughs> Having said that... <laughs> <laughs> May all beings be happy. <laughs> so. Inspiration, inspiration. <laughs> Giving care and attention to the theme of uh, inspiration, it's extraordinarily important to us. And it's important to us, obviously, in our relationship to life, both um, at the outer level and at the inner level. And it's often in any field of activity and in any field of committed activity <laughs> inspiration is important and we see that sometimes in whatever we do our heart and our mind t easily for periods of time can flag can 
um, dissipate with regard to the area which we are, feel quite dedicated and committed to. And as a result, we, we search, we, we, we need that boost, some kind of injection, which at the feeling level touches us and in being, in, and in being touched by something, it brings out of us a new resource, a new flow of energy. And so this area of inspiration in life is something necessary for any, any kind of work, any field in which one feels dedicated to. And therefore is a very, a very valuable resource for us. And as I say, it can occur both outwardly and both inwardly. And some, through a, a more devotional character and na nature of mind, tend to be more receptive to this field of inspiration, of being inspired by. And sometimes that, that as I say, arises through just the knowledge about, just knowing about something or someone past or present, outside of ourselves and what he, she and they have worked with or have gone through or the way the person is living, we connect with, with that um, source of uh, inspiration, whether we know the person or not. It affects us in, inwardly and it brings from us a motivation, a motivation towards uh, um, an action which is perhaps somewhat similar in character. This motive, um, area of motivation often comes because we are willing in our everyday life to place ourselves in situations which actively can encourage that. And so sometimes in order to be able to be inspired by it's necessary for us to break out of our shell, to break out of, like we've been speaking, break out of the, break out of the pattern, be exposed, to go to something new and connect with that situation, person, group, book, film, or what, whatever the source may be. And through that, we gain some renewal and the renewal allows our own focus and energy and action to continue. And so this is a, a contribution which, uh, as human beings, all of us can make to each other. And I feel that one of the most valuable resources for uh, or, um, um, uh, inspiration and the commitment and dedication that can come with it is a genuinely open view towards life. An open view towards life is the, is the ability in life to recognize men and women of um, commitment from whatever field or background they are coming from. In other words, if our view of life is restricted to a particular approach or a particular way, terribly easy within that, there is an exclusivity. And yet, as we know and sense and must really see that love, 
compassion, dedication, com commitment. Do, do not belong to any particular individual. Don't, are not the prerequisite of any particular religious belief or any particular kind of activity. And therefore it can love, compassion, dedication, renunciation, whatever inspires us can be found through, shall we say, countless agents, provided that you and I have the openness of heart and mind to be able to see where it is, where it is coming from, who it is coming from. And, and that love and compassion, renunciation, dedication and those kind of qualities are, are to be found in and through obvious forms and to be found in more formless approaches as well. And it, and it keeps coming back to us in our relationship to life. Do you and I have the eyes to see? Do you, do you and I have the receptivity to be able to sense and pick up from inspiration? From the, the, the example of others. And, and, and the thing is with this uh, attentiveness to the spirit of others in life, whether through hearsay or through uh, reading or through personal contact, it's the inspiration in a way which still affirms oneself. It's an, in, an inspiration meaning something that you and I can sense, genuinely appreciate, without having to compare. When we, when we see the example of another human being or human beings who are responding to life in a full, full way, as much as we can see, and it touches us, all well and good. But when it's used in comparison, we will always see ourselves in a lesser light. And so, as it were, the danger with, with the example of others that we use it once again to hammer ourselves. I'm not ready. I am not good enough. I can never be like, like that. I don't have this. I don't have that. And it's that kind of reactivity upon ourselves which hinders meaningful life, meaningful action meaningful communication, meaningful openness. And one of the grave, truly grave problems in Western society is the great difficulty that we as people have in truly accepting ourselves. I would say this is one of the most serious personal problems we experience. And so learning to, our, learning to accept ourselves with all our failings and our limitations in our humanness in a way is a contribution, if not a prerequisite, towards that receptivity in which inspiration comes, it touches one, it energizes, and the energy is not a high which lasts momentarily, but more it's an energy which brings some 
response. Bring some action. And so I'm sure that you and I in the course of our life and in our reflections can bring to mind, and sometimes it's helpful and useful in one's reflections on life, to bring to mind those people in life who genuinely have touched us, who have stimulated us, who have encouraged us in a way to go beyond the limitations of ourselves. Sometimes that, that um, example and some of the examples which um, come to my mind is where sometimes we meet someone who is obviously having a hard time and, 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 and the real meaning of what having a hard time is, is in life, of perhaps facing death. Who is, un- who is experiencing a, a great deal of personal pain, who has all the understandable accompanying um, fears and anxieties which can go with it. And yet through that whole, whole process, and I'm bringing to mind at the moment a, a friend of mine whose um, mother died from uh, cancer. And throughout the a whole, a whole year of you know, the gradual withering away as the cancer took a hold, took its grip, as it became more and more pervasive throughout the life and the cells of the body, yet throughout this whole period, no complaining. Just sometimes the capacity of the mind to be able to accept and to to work with and and to... develop and maintain a certain kind of forbearance in the midst of the most acute challenge to everything of oneself, to one's whole existence, being able to maintain a certain kind of equilibrium. And one wonders, where do men and women get this capacity from? No training for it in life, no real encouragement for it in, in, in life, and yet resources in the face of difficulty can emerge and in their emergence learning to take one thing at a time, take one day at a time. And sometimes you, when you and I, when we bring to mind such people and their, their capacity helps us feel in a very real way to learn to accept many of the smaller things in life which you and I have difficulty with. And sometimes I feel in that regard what's very important in any life of balance is really to work on getting things into perspective. Whatever it may be, learning to get it into perspective. Sometimes, in our receptivity, learning to get things into perspective comes just through the contact that the nature has with us. And so each evening I see a number of 
people just standing outside and just being aware of the uh, of the sunset and the the, the, the beauty of the of the the glow of the evening and the, and that redness as it fate makes its way across the sky and and that contact and communication which takes place and, the, and just the feeling of life and the nature and the and the quietness of the evening and there's some there's a, a sublime factor to that there's a there's a, a quality to it which has its own calmness and a pervasive calmness which when you and I are receptive and and perceptive we can feel and sense and as it were we settle in those moments truly into life and and in that just the the sunset and the human being facing the sunset in and of itself that accord that we can feel and experience puts much else into perspective that that in itself contributes very very substantially to seeing the place of some of the other issues and judgments and movements of our mind and so our communication with with the nature is is important unto itself but it's important in so far as much which one of the great miracles of life much which you and I thought we have to work out and work through we may not actually have to do so and so sometimes we do have in our practice and in our view of life and perhaps the view of our past that it all has to be worked out it's all got to come out through mind and body in some way or other but it's not necessarily so and the history of transformation and spiritual transformation says it's not necessary like that that one can be to use a certain form of religious language one can be truly born again be completely fresh to life without the burden of the past yet not having sorted it all out and there's the testimony for this by men and women in the present and in the past so whatever language that there can be there is a capacity with us for that inner awakening which defies all the conventional conditioned effects from yesterday yesteryear yester lifetime if there was one and sometimes within that there's people and often does bring people to to practice to this uh, this kind of uh, work some of the early inspiration tends to for a number of people comes from reading and it's in reading has been through many factors of course an important influence in our life an extraordinarily important one and one certainly needs this discernment and discrimination with regard to what one reads and some of what we have read let us say of sages of the past of the impact 
but they have, they have. And one perhaps brings to mind, if we're speaking of the Buddhist tradition, say in the Mahayana practices, and the great um, um, devotion that's expressed to some of the uh, Tibetan saints, Tibetan yogis. One thinks too of uh, the Zen tradition as well. And just uh, recently, um, I was at um, uh, a seminar for about a dozen um, of us in uh, England. And um, different people, a professor, and a philosopher, and a theologian, and an activist, and a couple of us people of practice, and two of us who were like from, more from this practice tradition. One was um, Reb Anderson, who's the assistant uh, abbot at the San Francisco Zen Center, and myself. And you know, we were talking, he spent a few days where I live in Totnes, and we were talking together about practice and the traditions and so forth. And in the course of the conversation, he mentioned how he notices that when he reads some of the stories of the Zen masters and, and of, their, of their practice and of the way of life in Japan and, and China, how much inspiration that, that, that gives and how much it's a, a reminder in, in daily life to maintain the practice, maintain the observation. And as he said, when very easily when one just important this, when one identifies with one's role, one assumes one's role, the practice very easily stops. And of course, recent history has tended in our Western society, has tended to show, show this, and so some of the sources for inspiration in terms of some of their teachers there has been some there have been difficulties there has been some disillusionment for all the reasons that it can occur and unfortunately uh, it possibly may be that sometimes amongst some of the teachers the practice was forgotten the form was remembered the words were remembered but the practice stopped and the role became predominant. And so any kind of working or practice on oneself in the spirit of openness, I would say true practice, if it's to be inspirational for oneself, possibly a little bit for others, it means that practice is truly open, it means it never ends, that there is no finality to it. And therefore, not having a finality, there is no limitation to it. There is no end point. And no matter how much we may believe or thought or assume that in some way that there is some finality, some enlightenment, which one doesn't have to do anything afterwards, that it's all hunky-dory because one's had this, you know major catastrophe in the mind that, <laughs> that uh, it's s simply a kind of misinterpretation of a message which has gone out.
and therefore is not communicating clearly what an everlasting openness means and it in context of practice. So, as I say, some of the traditions have that very well, very strong, this, uh, the inspiration from the past. Um, um, in this uh, Vipassana tradition, um, as you probably have um, long since realized, as many as of us have done, it simply doesn't have, which is rather interesting. Um, I assume that's because um, that maybe there hasn't been too much insight and therefore um, nothing was worth recording <laughs> and, and because nothing ever, no, none of them ever got round to recording anything then nothing got written and published and therefore nobody has been able to be very much inspired and then uh, and then and then others have gone to the gone to the east, you know, and to the um, what our um, Dharma friends would call the Hinayanist countries. I always this always makes me laugh, because having been exposed to um, um, Buddhism, I've not yet ever met anybody who says they are Hinayanist. I, you know, I'm told there are lots in the world, but I haven't met met one. No one will own up to this. <laughs> Um, and again one looking in a relationship to the past and one sometimes can go travelling to these uh, uh, different countries and like our contemporary uh, um, western religion Judaism, um, Christianity sometimes what one sees doesn't feel to be inspiring but it's often because we're looking in far too of a generalized way. And so inspiration in that respect really has to come through contact, through personal contact, through seeing for oneself. And so within the religious uh, traditions, whatever their, whatever their background, one has to probe. One has to, f- one has to find out where these people are and who, who they are and make the contact and then out of that contact, something can come. Now let me give you a, um, an example of this. I was just recently um, in, uh, in, in Switzerland, and I went to the uh, um, eastern part of Switzerland, and uh, um, a dear friend um, made his uh, lovely uh, house um, available for several days for um, me to stay there. It's in the hills. And while I was there, he said to me, I want you to look, look at this. These are some notes that I've taken. Have a look at these notes. And he said, there's an old man who, until two or three months ago, was living in the, one of these little uh, houses, wooden Swiss chalets, a hundred yards, literally 100, 200 yards from where I live. And He's a kind of uh, philosopher or meditator and he's 93 years old and he said, I just met him by chance and we got talking and as the time went by I just decided to take some notes on what his observations were about life and his insights. And so he's made just a few pages, uh, my friend Marcel, of just paragraphs of what this man said to him. He recorded and then um, 
and put onto the typewriter. And I must say, I have not read such insight in which, um, say, more technical language, the the essence of Christianity, the what in um, Buddha Dharma one would call the true non-dual Dharma, the two, the true transcendent Dharma communicated explicitly through um, Christian language. Very, very rare does it occur that there is that kind of insight because religion, all religions, tends to have such a dualistic approach to it. God and humanity and that relationship as being almost uh, inseparably different. And here's a, a transcendent insight with Jesus being referred to, um, communicating an understanding which makes the richness of wisdom of Advaita, Vedanta, of the Hindu tradition, and the very essence of the Buddha Dharma communicated through Christian terminology. For me, it was a joy and a, an inspiration to read and to see this. Something which um, Meister Eckhart, a great uh, Christian mystic, would have applauded for days to see. So again, sometimes there's this contact and, uh, and sometimes it occurs quite spontaneously. And when that occurs spontaneously and we receive some inspiration without, as I say, comparing, without the desire to uh, imitate, be nurtured by those contacts, they are extraordinarily valuable in this world. And that, we, and, and that one doesn't need, as I mentioned, a, a teacher figure or a leader figure in any way. It's someone who we see does have the power to reach us. This area of um, inspiration also occurs too, of course, within the context and within the framework of a retreat. That we see people who are dedicated to their practice. And sometimes it looks a little bit strange. You know, there's the, the lack of eye contact. And this is often quite disturbing. And quite regularly on retreats, people will leave notes and say, you know, why, why isn't there any eye contact going on here? And uh, sometimes there is, and sometimes there... There isn't. Sometimes some people are seeking it out one, one way or the other. One of the common uh, syndromes which takes place um, is the VR and VV syndrome. Those of you who have, um, um, unfortunate enough to have been here before, um, will be familiar. Um, it's, again, we pass in our technical language. Uh, <laughs> for the initiated um, and VR means Vipassana romance Vipassana romance means that you've never met this person before in your life you know absolutely nothing about this person and out of the group of uh, people here sharing and being in silence the mind has moved and has focused on that individual <laughs> and one has convinced this is the answer 
to all of one's dreams <laughs> without any, any knowledge. And everything then gets interpreted in light of what this person is doing. And sometimes it's very inspirational. <laughs> I shan't go into that. <laughs> and so some of the forms it takes, you know, it, I mean, a number of times that we are entering and exiting out of this place, um, out of this room and in the queue for the food and so forth, that the two people and one person can have this raging VR which is taking place. And each time he or she gets close to another because they happen to be walking behind each other or queuing for food or on this one name behind the other on the interview list, it's all seen as part of the karmic destiny. <laughs> And, and so this, this one, one sits and, of course, one is so inspired by the presence of another, what one finds oneself sitting longer in the sittings, um, partly because the fantasy is so entertaining <laughs> and, and partly because it's hopefully making such an indelibly deep impression <laughs> on this other person who has absolutely no idea about this VR. <laughs> and for your, for your information, um, people mention this on retreats, um, for your information, the record is um, one person on the receiving end of um, 11 VRs. <laughs> and so, since we're not practicing polygamy too much, um, anyway... So again, the mind, and this is the VR, and this is the answer to one's dreams, and the VV, which is the Vipassana villain, and this person is the answer to all of one's nightmares. <laughs> and no matter what this person does, you know, they only have to, you know, lift their hand an inch in the sitting, and it's a proof to oneself of how worthless and useless. <laughs> Like, uh, this person is. So the, so the, the mind quickly, in, in the course of its stays here, um, takes up one or the other. And in this taking up of the, the Vipassana villain, in the, um, the most difficult is if one does happen to know that the VV has actually been here before. This... this then this is definitely doesn't seem to be inspiring. Because one is thinking, they've been here before, and they're doing that, having been on at least one or two retreats. Well, this practice obviously isn't any purpose, and isn't, how is it going to work for me? Because they're still picking their nose at the dinner table. <laughs> so now, so uh, looking at what's happening around... <laughs> Um, around, looking at what's happening around us, seeing what's the connection, where the isolation is taking place, how it's affecting us. In this area and field of uh, in, inspiration and the, the, the flow of it, unfortunately the limitation of inspiration is that because it's primarily a feeling experience, 
it does tend to be so easily short-lived. And so at times we hear, see, know about something, we are affected, we feel momentarily enthused to do something. Whether it's you know, to meditate a little harder, to, to sit longer, or whatever the structure and form may be, but it fades. And so there needs to be, with enthusiasm, the recognition of it, and hopefully for us, a certain accompanying awareness and determination that will take it a little bit further. Not in a crudely ambitious way, but in a way which energy is there, the lightness is there, the vitality is there, and we employ it. So that it just simply doesn't fade out, fade away for us. And sometimes, you know, as you know, with, the, with regard to the groups and the group meet, um, meetings and getting to know people and to see what people are working with and going through, often a person simply has no idea of the very formidable pains and difficulties that others are going through on a retreat. And people work with, and tremendous credit to them, people work with tremendous things inside and have that willingness and capacity to, to stay with something and all being well, see it right through to the other side. And practice offers that kind of environment. And so sometimes when we see people and we're feeling judgmental or negative, mostly it's because we simply don't know the person. We don't know what's happening inside, which is producing outside obviously obvious manifestations of difficulty. And in, in relation to this Aryan aspect of uh, in, in, inspiration, about, um, um, oh, I think, Norman, last year, was when I gave a retreat in Canada last uh, year, last, last spring, and one of the people on the retreat was and is um, a journal, journalist and working in Buffalo. And during the late 50s and early 60s, he was in the southern part of the United States. United States. He was a, a stringer for a, a Time magazine and included in his assignments was reporting on the civil rights movement. And as he said that there would be these young men and women and they would sometimes take, a, uh, take posters and they would take a place which uh, a racist establishment and simply walk up and down outside that building in protest, one day to the next. The people in that local town or city would ignore them. But through the continuity of doing that, one day, he said, two days, three days, four days, it seemed as though amongst the uh, culture and all that's taken place in the last century or, or two, that people began to get more tense and more uptight and more agitated. It was as though integration threatened their culture, their philosophy, their whole belief about life, 
about the necessity for this divisiveness in the world. And of course, it brought about sometimes aggression through the action, the civil disobedience, and the expression of nonviolence. And yet, it mobilized people. It brought people to an awareness that things had to change, that the consciousness had to change. And so these small actions, which seemed in themselves not to be doing anything, and which frequently no one press included took any notice of, actually became in time, took root in the psyche, and others were inspired by And so often in any kind of work, any kind of individual action, wherever you and I may be, whatever form it may take, it's hard to see, as the Buddha said, it's hard to see, he said, it's almost impossible, he said, to see what are the effects of action. To see what what influence that has, the far-reaching influences that has. And so in our relationship to life, it's hard for you and I, while being here, to see in our awareness and in our observation and in our sitting and walking what this means as far as ourselves, as far as others, as far as life on earth is. But we hope And our heart's wish is that through the practices and through the inquiry into consciousness, there will come about a new, not a new, completely new, of course, but a consciousness which is somewhat more free from some of its limitations in us in order to create human beings who can contribute to this world in a full and expansive way. And hopefully through that we inspire each other. And in light of that, uh, I just mentioned with regard to uh, the extraordinary work of Martin Luther King and others, just uh, recently uh, Gavin, who is here, who is from South Africa, and as you know, South Africa is in a situation which in fact is far more, in a way, both critical and, and full of anguish than, I would say, than it could have been in the southern states in the mid-50s and early 60s, because at least here there was a constitution which gave the rights to the black community, whether they were supported, but technically Washington and the powers to be supported equality. In South Africa, the state, the police and the army do not give any kind of acceptance to it. So the black community is faced with an an intolerable situation. And therefore is dramatically different. But still, of course, as painful as, as was experienced and still is experienced wherever there is racism in this world and so much of it. So Gavin wrote, and he and has secured for um, this film um, a three-hour documentary of Martin Luther King, of his work, of his speeches, 
And so at 9.30 this evening, for those of you who wish to lend um, eye and ear, we're going to um, show this film. It's a fairly lengthy film. It lasts for three uh, hours. And please, in, or with regard to that, if you wish to lend to, to, to see the film here, please, by all means, do so. If you feel, listen to yourself, if you feel that it's going to create too much imagery, disturb the practice in any way, then forget it and continue with the <coughs> practice. And perhaps this evening after 9.30, uh, there's still the energy, do some sittings in one's room. And, and of course, if any point during the film one feels uh, tired or whatever, Please feel completely free with regard to this evening to come and go as you wish. And to say it's quite a, a long film, and in the and since for many it would be a much later night than usual, so what I would suggest is that uh, come five o'clock in the morning, if you wish to start um, a bit later in the morning, um, by all means uh, do so. Ten past five, five fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and then the day, the following day, tomorrow, of course, we'll get, get underway as, as, used, as usual. I um, saw this uh, um, film at, um, here about, I think it was a year, I can't remember, a year ago, maybe, the commemoration, 63, maybe, 83, the commemoration of the, the Washington's uh, speech. And uh, this is a very touching film. It's a film of... Uh, Courage in the, in the face of struggle and, and adversity. And possibly for us it will be a little inspirational. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with inspiration. May all beings live with truth. <laughs>